It seems like I say this a lot these days, but yeah, more injuries. I'll ask our Player Watch news analysts, Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, about the latest news from spring training and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 6th. It's show number 10 of the 2020 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday news and comment edition for you. We'll have our League Watch Player News reports, Harold Nichols with coverage of the National League, including a key injury in the Philadelphia outfield, an ace with question marks, and a sleeper with exclamation marks. And Ray Murphy will have news from the American League, including injuries hitting the Yankees outfield and the Red Sox rotation. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Alex Becky looks at Boston outfielder Jaron Duran. And in the three-minute warning, I'll be talking about why I'm not taking starting pitchers in an expert's draft. It's another big Friday news and comment edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? I think my cold is getting better. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday news and comment edition, our player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. First bit of news we have is about a guy I think a lot of people were interested in this year, right-hander Tyler Bede from San Francisco. A lot of people thought he might find his way into the rotation and be a pretty useful fantasy asset later in the draft. Now he's been diagnosed with a flexor strain, uh, often a precursor to some elbow problems, and he does have a sprained ulnar collateral ligament, which is the Tommy John ligament, after he had an MRI on Tuesday, March the 3rd. Uh, So what are we going to do about Tyler Bede as far as drafts go? Well, I'm taking him off my draft list at this point. His uh, uh, beat says he expects to avoid surgery, will receive a second opinion, and that his UCL is 75% intact. Uh, and clearly, I, he was a clear favorite to claim the number five spot out of spring training in the in the rotation in San Francisco, but he'll now begin the season on the IL. And minus any kind of a return t- timetable, I think we're going to be skeptical as to his eventual 2020 contributions. Uh, manager Gabe Kapler named uh, a bunch of people who could, uh, as candidates for the job, Andrew Suarez, Logan Webb, Trevor Cahill, Tyson Ross, Trevor Oaks, Sean Anderson, uh, with no one really having an upper hand uh, this early. But we'll, uh, HQ will stay on top of that and see what, what goes on, but I'm not optimistic about Tyler Beat at the moment. Jock Thompson on the story for Baseball HQ. He doesn't seem to think anything is going to happen with these candidates. As you got six guys for candidates for a job, you don't have a candidate for a job. Is how I look at it. Uh, it Maybe bigger injury news: Andrew McCutcheon uh, in Philadelphia, an outfielder there, is going to miss the start of the season at least. Uh, Phil Hertz covered the story for Playing Time today. What are the Phillies going to do while they wait for Andrew McCutcheon to recover? Well, the Phillies say they hope to have McCutcheon playing in April, but. Uh... Uh, the news has to be really disconcerting for fantasy owners, not to mention the Phillies. Uh, McCutcheon got off to a nice start after joining the Phillies in 2019. He had 10 home runs, uh, compiled an 834 OPS, but only stole two bases 
before he had season-ending knee surgery. And even when he gets back, one has to anticipate that he'll he'll need to be rested periodically. Uh, thoughts of double-digit steals are probably long gone. And as a result, we've reduced his projected at bat significantly. And with the news that he'll be out for a stretch, uh, we've given bumps in playing time to both Jay Bruce and Roman Quinn. Uh, Bruce got off to a hot start from the Phillies last year after they got him from the Mariners uh, in part to replace McCutcheon. Uh, but he joined McCutcheon on the sidelines, and he had only 68 at-bats after July 1st. And also of concern is the fact that he did not walk once after July 1st. Uh, McQuinn, too, has a habitual resident of the IL. Uh, Quinn has also been a habitual resident of the IL. When he's healthy, a dangerous base runner indeed. Uh, 2020 forecaster gave him an up of 30 stolen bases. So if Quinn gets playing time, uh, he could be a, a good stolen, uh, stolen base source. Uh, for NL teams. Interestingly, Nick, uh, the Andrew McCutcheon playing time estimate at BaseballHQ.com is a 15% decline. That's a fairly big slice. And then Roman Quinn and Jay Bruce get 10% each. So there's going to been some rejuggling of that to playing time situation in Philadelphia. All in all, I think obviously Andrew McCutcheon falls down the list. And with the stolen base loss, Nick, it, it, that also concerns me as far as how high Andrew McCutcheon could go because if you take stolen bases out of his mix, I mean, he's still a good player, but he's certainly not anywhere near the elite like he used to be. Yeah, certainly, very definitely. But the stolen base is gone, then he drops down to a level where there are a number of other uh, players with similar skill levels uh, who, could, uh, who could fill that slot and maybe not have the injury possibility. One of our favorite columns, the Ryan Bloomfield speculator column, Nick, uh, this week was looking at rebound candidates among pitchers because people have the uh, the backward-looking bias against things that happened recently. And Edwin Diaz had a terrible year last year. The question is, is he a bet to rebound in 2020? Well, you know, he dropped off a lot after last year's disaster at 5.59 ERA. Uh, and so uh, that, that sent him tumbling down draft boards. In fact, he's the only player in the last six-plus years with a top 150 ADP uh, coming off a five-plus ERA season the year before. So, uh, save for a minor uptick in walks, uh, his skills were really unchanged from 2018. Uh, what what got to him was a brutal 27% home run per fly rate. That was mostly to blame for the, uh, the spike in his ERA. He was the top closer off the board this time last year. Uh, no reason to think he can't return to that level. Uh, should the gopheritis subside, just keep in mind that uh, some of that rebound potential is already baked into his price. So uh, we, we expect Edwin Diaz to come back, uh, but certainly, and this may be, in fact, a good time to buy because the price is considerably lower uh, than, it, than it was uh, a year ago. It is quite a bit lower. I remember, I think he was the first closer off the board in my uh, great fantasy baseball invitational league last year in the fourth or fifth round. And this year he's fallen into the eighth round in that same league. And there are a lot of guys ahead of him as far as closers go. Josh Hader's been going ahead of him and Kirby Yates has been going ahead of him. So uh, there are maybe some buying opportunities. I think Taylor Rogers was even right around that same area. Uh, Osuna was taken ahead of him. Uh, so this could be an opportunity for, for Diaz. 
The problem is, I think, Nick, when I look at the situation is, it's not like the Mets lack for choices. Seth Lugo was really good last year, and he's going to be relegated because of contract reasons. They're paying Diaz a lot of money to to, to not be the closer, unless he is the closer. So I think they've got every financial incentive to try to make Diaz the closer. But really, Seth Lugo had a better year. And then, lurking around in the woods, uh, a bit of an injury problem to open the year. But Dellen Batons is signed in New York as well. So if Diaz even flutters a little bit at the start of the year, I think there's a possibility that he could be on a very short leash. And for that reason, I don't know that I might de-emphasize Edwin Diaz a little more to the point where it's not really unlikely that I would get him. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, there's a we, we can look at it and say the skills were certainly there last year and he had a lot of bad luck. But uh, you're right. There are other. Op- it's not as though he's the only closer uh, available to the Mets. And so if he does struggle, I think they'll be very quick to replace him. In playing time tomorrow, Alanda Leonardis uh, covers the National League East. This is a roster forecasting feature that runs regularly at Baseball HQ. They go on a rotation, and they look at all the teams in the division. And uh, Alanda this week discussed the Marlins pitching rotation, and he found some starting pitchers that have upside. Yeah, they have several starting pitchers with upside who are really, really at this point, a lock for the rotation. Uh, Kenneth Smith... Uh, heads up the staff after setting a career high with 153 innings pitched last season. Uh, he was uh, flashing ace potential in his first 12 starts, 3.41 ERA, 3.85 uh, XFIP, 22 walks, 82 strikeouts in only 66 innings pitched. So, and then 30 days on the IL due to hip inflammation. After that, he was out of whack for the rest of the season. From then on, 5.36 ERA, uh, 40 walks, 80 strikeouts in 87 innings. If he's healthy, there's a possibility that Smith could build upon those first two months. Uh, and that's a pretty exciting possibility. But uh, that if looms large for him in terms of health, given that he's uh, had 144 days on the IL over the past three seasons. So that's certainly a question mark. Uh, but there is some upside there with Caleb Smith. Uh, Sandy Alcantara has picked up legions of fantasy reporters after a strong second half last season. Second half of 3.90 ERA, 124 whip, 567 BPV. And there was an 11-start stretch to close out the season in which he posted a 2.78 ERA, 1.05 whip, uh, 21 walks, 62 strikeouts, and 74 innings pitched. So he was closing out the season in great fashion. We always like to look at the way in, people finish, and, and Alcantara finished well. Definitely has some weapons. Most notably, his ability to keep the ball on the ground with a 45% ground ball rate as a very heavy sinker. But before you start working on your uh, uh, your costume for ComCon, keep in mind the following. His 6.9 Don for the year was still well below average, still only 5.7.5 Dom during his last breakout months, uh, benefited from a friendly uh, batting average of balls in play, only 242 during the hot stretch. Uh, leading to a full run difference between his ERA uh, and his FIP of 3.78. So still, if he can continue to refine his slider as a put-away pitch, cut down on the walks, he could have an interesting year. But there are some question marks about Alcantara in terms of skills, I think, at this point. So that's one to be careful with. Of the other three who are likely to be locked into a rotation spots, Pablo Lopez has the highest upside. Uh, in spite of a rough overall 2019, 5.09 ERA, but a 4.22 XDRA suggests he got a bit of a raw deal. Uh, he was another starting pitcher who wasn't the same 
after he came back from shoulder surgery. And we should note that he also battled shoulder issues in 2018. But 24 years old, an impressive 105 BPV for the year, which for, reflects his 48% ground ball rate, 2.2 uh, control, which is excellent. 11% um, swinging strike rate supports Adam higher than his 7.7 uh, from last season. So foundation there for a solid number three starter if his shoulder cooperates. All through this entire report, uh, you, you, you had a line there that you said that the if looms particularly large for Caleb Smith. And if you look at Alcantara and Lopez, it looks like if is a big word in their potential as well. And uh, something that jumped out at me from Alan's report, he said uh, um, if he can stay healthy and if he can continue to refine his slider, then he's going to be a possible breakout candidate. And you think to yourself, okay. That sounds reasonable. And then you ask yourself, well, what are the probabilities that both of those things happen? And if you say, okay, let's say it's 80% that he's healthy and 80% that he figures out this slider, which are both pretty good probabilities, uh, four chances out of five, right? But if you multiply those probabilities together, now you're down to 65% that both of them happen. And right. it sounds like Sandy Alcantara has to have both of these things happen to be the breakout candidate, not just one. And so it's not an if this happens or this happens, it's if this happens and this happens. And as soon as you start multiplying those ifs, you're starting to really reduce the probability that everything falls into place. I'm not saying that Sandy Alcantara is not a good bet or Caleb Smith is not a good bet or Pablo Lopez, for that matter, is not a good bet. I'm just saying be cautious when you start reading those ifs and be aware that they can start to multiply and we really have especially with shoulder injuries and those kinds of injuries in the first place we don't even really have an excellent way of understanding how much probability there is right you're absolutely right and as the ifs multiply you're correct the 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 percentage drops down very very quickly so and when somebody's got two ifs i tend to look at them as eh, i don't know and especially if one of those ifs is an injury that in fact might recur in the market pulse column, uh, our Matt Cedarholm, a really terrific analyst at BaseballHQ.com, looks at where players are going by ADPs and sometimes by uh, average auction value, and then he compares those players to their value as calculated by Baseball HQ's uh, projections and valuation systems. And what he's looking for, Nick, of course, is the gaps. Is somebody going way higher than he should be based on what we think his, uh, his actual value is going to be? then that's a guy to avoid. And more interestingly, if a guy's going way lower than we have him, then that could be a buying opportunity. Uh, so let's talk about two of those. First, uh, Matt says Max Scherzer looks like he's being overbought. He has an ADP of 16, so he's an early second round, late first round. But our HQ projections say he's only 47th overall in fantasy value. What's the source of the big difference and how should we play it? Yeah, you know, Max Scherzer, as Cedar Holmes says, has been the best pitcher in baseball over the past five years or so. Also an Ironman, missing, making the 30-plus starts for 10 years straight. And then last year, a neck shoulder issue held him to 27 starts. His skills last season, 2019, may have been the best of his career, a 201 BPV. So why are we ranking him lower this year? And there are really two things. First, we're only projecting 28 starts. That's probably the biggest reason. With a projection of 200-plus innings, he'd easily be a top-10 pick. But we it's wise to be conservative. The Nationals may not work him so hard, given his health issues. He's costing him a lot of money, uh, and so they may keep innings down and make sure that the health issues are not do not uh, 
resume any time during the year when they would not want to lose him in the midst of a pennant race. Second factor is his reliability. That's never been an issue in the past, but it's depressing his value. From our point of view, should we really put that much weight on one injury? And the answer is yes. The odds of an injury to a given part of the body go up really significantly if the players had an injury in that area in the previous season, even if that was the first time an injury had occurred. So Scherzer may well start 33 games and finish the top fantasy pitcher, but you're dealing with risk. The risk is very high. Uh, if you're looking for a starter in the late first or second round, there are better choices. Walker Bueller, Jack Flaherty, Shane Bieber are all much safer choices than Max Scherzer at this point. Well, I talked with uh, Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs Rotographs uh, earlier this week in the Tuesday Tout, and he said Shane Bieber's a stay away, interestingly enough, uh, because there's a lot of lower level metrics or, or the more refined metrics that point to Shane Bieber having been fairly lucky last year, and there's all kinds of red flags over Shane Bieber, so I will just point that out. But this is an interesting case where uh, we talked about uh, Ryan Bloomfield looking at players who uh, whose reputation from the previous year is tainting uh, their their possibility for this year. The example being Edwin Diaz, who's got good skills and blah, just had a terrible year. But here we have a situation where Max Scherzer really you should be looking at last year because of the injury, and you should be tainting his or or downgrading his potential because of the injury and the likelihood of repetition, especially at his age. And yet nobody is. And so that there, it seems like there's a kind of a double standard here, that if you're real famous or real long-term, that people are much more willing to give you the benefit of the doubt than if you're not. And in this case, uh, what the point that, that uh, Matt Cederholm is making is, let somebody else take the risk on Max Scherzer. Yes, they may win, but at this point, for various reasons, especially that injury reason, uh, there's, a, there's a good chance that Max Scherzer is simply not going to be uh, a top 15, top 16 type player. Right, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, it's it's a it's a situation where reliability and injury risks should push him further down the draft board, and there are simply better choices if you're going to draft someone, a pitcher like Max Scherzer, in the first or the second round. Matt Cederholm also pointed out uh, another pitcher, Denelson Lamette of San Diego, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. He's Baseball HQ's 267th ranked player by dollar value. But he's going nine rounds earlier. He's going at ADP 125. A lot of people like Denilson Lamette. Why are Baseball HQ's analysts so low on a pitcher who seems uh, so high on everyone's sleeper lists? Well, of course, we mean he's everyone's on everyone's sleeper list. As you said, he's a gigantic sleeper. That means everyone's heard of him, and he's not really a sleeper anymore. Uh, you, you see the issue, right? Uh, it's a very common scenario. The market gets excited about a sleeper or a breakout and pushes up the draft price. And it often gets to the point where the draft price approaches his reasonable upside. So uh, we forget that the reason we liked the guy so much in the first place was his low draft price. And by now, his draft price is up to the point that he's got to be a breakout candidate. I mean, he's got to fully break out in order to match that draft price. So what does an e reasonable upside look like for Lamette? We'll start with 115 eighth pitch, which is likely as much as the Padres would want him to pitch. Uh, 219 XERA was 3.53, DOM 12.9. Apply that to 150 innings. Assume a normal rate of wins based on the Padres' offense. You get 11 wins, 3.50 ERA, 1.2 whip, 215 strikeouts. That compares favorably to Corey Kluber's 2020 projection. And uh, Baseball HQ has Kluber ranked 118th. So 
from where we sit, that 125 ADP represents his upside. If you believe in his September, which was a 298 XDRA, 14.3 DOM, then the upside becomes maybe Chris Sale at ADP of 33, but that's a real, 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 real big leap. Uh, also on a team that doesn't need 150 innings from him, given the depth they have at starting pitching. Bottom line, current draft price pretty much squeezes out all of the profit of from Denilson Lamette. And if he drops a few rounds, there's some upside that makes him worth a pick. But I would not go with him at his current draft price. No, I think so. I like the idea of upside. I mean, that's how you win drafts, right, Nick? You you get profit. You take a guy in the 16th round and he turns out to be a 10th round value. You make you make a profit. You amass enough of that profit and you win your league. The problem is, as Matt Cedarholm suggests here, is that a guy like Lamette is, is being priced so that there is no profit or the, the profit is very unlikely at this stage. He mentions that if everything... From September gets repeated for an entire six month season in 2020. Then his upside is Chris Sale. He's a, he's a second round guy, a high, a high second round guy. You know that's a different matter because it it falls back into that uh, if 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 sort of scenario that we talked about earlier. So for Denison Lamette to be a profitable player. That, that will happen if he maintains a strikeout rate of uh, 14 strikeouts per nine, if he keeps his ERA under three, if he keeps his whip around one or 1.05, if, 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 if. And, and even if you accept that there's three or four of these ifs and they're all 90% chances, you're still talking about multiplying it down and now you're down to about a 75% chance. Some owners are going to be willing to take that risk. Uh, a lot of owners, if they're thinking about it, are probably going to think, well, at that stage in the draft, I think I'll probably go for Corey Kluber, not that Corey Kluber's without risk himself. Right, of course. I mean, Corey Kluber brings his own risks. And so the, the problem is you're, you're, you're betting on Denilson Lamette to, um, to display for the full season a level of skill he displayed for one month. Uh, and in a young pitcher, that's probably not ready yet. It may take a few years for it. He may eventually get there, may be able to do that uh, over the course of a full season, but it may not be in 2020. Yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, he's he's got a very short track record in Major League Baseball. Uh, after all, I think he came up in 2017 and had a sort of cup of coffee type thing, and then he missed a year, and then he's uh, had a, a fairly decent year last year, especially in the second half. But, you know, his his total innings for his entire Major League career is 187 and a third. 187 innings, and you're making fairly significant buying decisions based on a track record that short. I mean, really, when you're looking at Corey Kluber, who's probably, you know, in the thousands, well, he is in the thousands of innings, I don't know, I think there's two different things. And it's interesting that we're talking about starters because uh, uh, Michael Waddell every year has a two-part series on anchor starters for what he calls the Santana Plan draft strategy. And before we talk about particular pitchers, Nick, uh, for listeners who might not remember or might not have heard of this Santana Plan draft strategy, what is the Santana Plan? It's named after Johan Santana, who was among the first examples of a rotation ace who could anchor the plan. Basically, it's a roster construction strategy that advocates buying one elite starting pitcher to set a foundation, especially in the decimals categories, and then filling up the rest of your pitching staff with low-cost Lima Skills guys and using an overbalanced hitting budget to dominate the offensive categories. 
Yeah, I remember this uh, when it first came up. It reminded me a lot of the Lima strategy in general. And the tweak was in in a full Lima strategy, you don't take any aces. You spend maybe 60 or $65 of your 260 buying pitchers, and, and they all have to be these Lima skills guys. And then you, you just completely dominate the hitting by going 200 or $205 on hitting out of your 260 the, the tweak was by getting this one real solid elite level pitcher, you could lay down a kind of a 200 inning foundation, as you said, a basis to build on for the rest of those guys, because you, you've got that one guy who's giving you some counting stats. He's giving you a lot of innings with good decimals so that the you uh, you have that in your in your favor as well, and then all the rest of the guys are skills guys, and it allows you to dominate hitting to a little lesser extent. Michael has seven pitchers on the list this season. That's all based on skills. We see the usual names: Nick, uh, Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, uh, Jacob Degrom, but there are some surprises here. Yeah, some people. One of the surprises. Some people might find Zach Granke to be a surprise on the list, but he's really been amazingly consistent and amazingly productive. So much so that Michael Waddell makes a point of noting that Granke, after being taken too cheaply last year and putting up very good numbers, is again being taken too cheaply in 2020. So uh, keep that in mind. But the real surprise on the list, I think, is Trevor Bauer of Cincinnati. Bauer's a good reminder that we draft skills and not past results. Uh, ADP around 86th, sixth round, the lowest of any of this year's Santana anchors. Posted an ERA under four just once in his career. Likely continue having above average home run per fly pitching in Cincinnati. So even his skills are near the lower boundary for a Santana plant starter. So far, Nick, you're convincing us that we shouldn't draft Trevor Bauer, but Michael's take was that we should. Why? Well, really, Bauer has a very high floor, uh, an excellent health history, just a fluky 2018 broken leg, and most importantly, finished in the top 10 in all of Major League Baseball in strikeouts for the past three straight seasons. Uh, if you look at BPV, Basic Performance Indicator Skills Metrics, he held on to most of his 2018 gains, so he no longer profiles the pitcher who will damage your team's whip. Um, maybe a boring pick, but probably a very effective pick this year. Uh, and don't forget that a high floor, a solid floor, is certainly very, very valuable. I think that's right, Nick. And I think what this uh, example points out to us is it's a test of the philosophy of Baseball HQ, which says you should consider a pitcher's or player's actual skills and and discount his actual results on the field. So, for example, in 2019 for Cincinnati, uh, Trevor Bauer had a 6.39 ERA and a 135 WHIP. These are terrible numbers, but if you look at his skills, he was pitching exactly the same as he pitched in in Cleveland. He just wasn't getting near the results. In Cleveland, he was a 3.80 ERA and a 120 WHIP. That's a huge difference, but the skills were exactly the same. In fact, in Cincinnati, he was walking fewer guys. Now, he gave up a few more home runs, and that's a, a big problem, but he was walking fewer guys. He was striking out the same number of guys. His strikeout-to-walk ratio was actually higher in Cincinnati than it was in Cleveland. And so I guess what we're asking our listeners, the fantasy owners out there to do is take it on faith that Baseball HQ believes this idea that if you draft the skills, the good results will follow. And if you can't do that, then you're missing out on a profit opportunity. Right. I mean, we, we, we have consistently over the years said buy skills, not roles. And more often than not, that pays off. So we may be a year or two early on a breakout, but uh, if you buy guys with high skills, you're likely to find some good values and a good chance for a breakout at some point during the season. 
Nick, I uh, appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you again next week. We're getting closer to the regular season. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, we'll have news analysis from the American League with Ray Murphy. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Rotisserie Gaming, analyst Michael Waddell has part one of his annual list of anchors for the Santana Plan Draft Strategy. Talked about that earlier, including several names you'll expect and some you won't. In Alternative Gaming, Matt Beagle, a former star here at Baseball HQ Radio, has his draft guide for hitters in points leagues. And in the Speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield, next week's Tuesday tout here at Baseball HQ Radio, and a past presenter here as well, He'll be looking at 2020 bounce-back pitchers who could benefit owners who can ignore recency bias about 2019's bad performances. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt, and we have tools like the player projections updated every day. There are daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, it's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and to win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And don't forget, when you sign out, promo code PATRICK, get 10% off. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for news from the American League. And here with the stories and the analysis is co-general manager of Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, Ray Murphy. Welcome back to the show. Good to be back, Patrick. Thanks for giving me a break for First Pitch Florida last week. How was it in general? It was fantastic. You know, it's always a lot of work, especially leading up to the event. But once you get down there and get to, uh, you know, actually immerse yourself for the weekend, it was uh, it was a very good time. And I think the attendees had a ball, got a lot of positive feedback. I think it'll be more than a one-year thing. That's great news. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I wonder while you were down there, you got to see a couple of spring training games. Did you notice any ambulances pulling out of the field? It seems like it's all injuries all the time down there. It really does. Uh, you know, it's funny. You know, long story short, there was a uh, in our hotel. There was actually a boxing match on Saturday night, and there was a uh, there was an ambulance parked out front for that. But for all I know, they had uh, you know there were a couple of injured grapefruit leaguers in the back of that ambulance. Everybody just lining up, waiting their turn, I guess. Uh, and uh, you were in the area of the New York Yankees, where Giancarlo Stanton was being drafted a little later than last year on the expectation of health questions. And even a, a, a little later doesn't seem late enough now. Uh, Stanton has been diagnosed with a grade one calf strain, and he might not be ready to go at the start of the regular season, according to manager Aaron Boone. Uh, Chris Olson covering the story for Playing Time Today and covering the story about Aaron Judge, still having trouble with that shoulder pec strain issue what's going on in that Yankees outfield and who figures to benefit yeah the two uh the two boppers there who you know when they got united uh in New York there were jokes about you know them hitting 100 home runs a year and now I think we talk more about an over under of 100 DL days certainly with Stanton this is uh not a new development after last year uh but the his particular case it sounds like he's more 
He's more certain to miss opening day. I think there's still a window of opportunity for Judge to possibly get ready. But realistically, you know, given how important these guys are to the Yankees and given that they're going to probably be playing a lot of cold weather games in April, you can easily imagine both of them being um, handled with great care until later in April at least. So as you say, there's, uh, there's some opportunity there, and it could be Miguel Andujar, who's back from his own injury from last year and trying to find a spot in the lineup now that uh, Gio Urshela has taken over third base on him. So uh, he's been trying to adapt to the outfield, and this might be an opportunity for him. Uh, there are some DH at bats with Stanton, too, and Andujar certainly seems like a, uh, a possible recipient of those. We've also been seeing some stories about Mike Talkman uh, and Clint Frazier back from the uh, land of the lost. Uh, Clint Frazier, of course, a really good hitter, and he's never been able to find a role in uh, New York because of his glove, which, oddly enough, was quite good in the minor leagues, but never seems to play in the major leagues. Uh, what are we thinking about uh, guys like Frazier and Talkman? Yeah, Talkman was a you know big, pleasant surprise last year and sort of a kind of a big reason why the sort of stars and scrubs Yankees lineup, you know, was so good despite so many of the stars being hurt last year was the, you know, the relative unknowns like Talkman and Ursula provided more contribution than you could ever possibly have hoped for. Uh, and, and, you know, Frazier might be the next guy in that line. Certainly Talkman's going to play this year, but you, you summarized Frazier's uh, pluses and minuses really well. But it, it seemed somewhat telling to me that despite the glove problems, despite a uh, couple of unfortunate times where he put his foot in his mouth with the media a little bit that Brian Cashman held on to him and he might have it might have been because he thought he needed him or it might be because he really really believes in that bat and I get excited when I see Frazier getting an opportunity because it might be that this is the time when uh, you know for all the headaches and shortcomings that have been the focus of his uh, brief career to date maybe maybe the strength finally take over and maybe this is where the bat really gets a chance to shine. Well, certainly if he comes north, it'll be a chance for put-up or shut-up time for Clint Frazier. I know at BaseballHQ.com, our playing time analysts have given uh, Clint Frazier 40% of the outfield plate appearances, and that could rise, of course, depending on what happens with uh, with Aaron Judge. And I don't know if you saw this news story the other day, but uh, one of the, somebody in the Yankees front office, or maybe it was Aaron Boone, I don't remember, but was saying that they're giving him tests and tests and tests and more tests, trying to figure out what's going on with this. And it could be one of those situations where it's really not that big of a deal, or it could be that it's a really big deal, in which case Clint Frazier at 40% could easily become Clint Frazier at 75%. And Mike Talkman at 55% could also benefit, or one, of the, one or the other of them could benefit. It's a real mess over there. It really is, and it's always this is a good time to interject that those playing time percentages that you're citing, everything we project for playing time on the site is over the course of the full season. So if you're trying to plot, you know, for draft day, if you're most worried about April, you know, the it's very likely that probably both Talkman and Frazier or two out of three of Talkman, Frazier, and Andujar are going to be full-timers or 75% guys for most of April until Stanton and Judge get straightened out. And there's probably more, to your point about all the additional testing, there's probably more downside than upside. It's probably, you know, if I were making a guess, I would say it's more likely that one or both of those guys miss all of April than are ready for opening day. 
And we should say that uh, Stanton's calf injury is considered grade one, which is the lowest level. And ordinarily, that would mean we could be fairly confident that he'll be uh, only out for a limited time. But he's, uh, he's down at Baseball HQ's depth charts for 70% of the playing time at DH. And if he misses any time again, you're talking about uh, what Ron Chandler calls these impossible pathways to playing time for guys like Andujar, uh, maybe Clint Frazier, if they still don't trust his glove, if uh, Stanton's going to miss a month with this calf injury, all of a sudden Frazier looks like a pretty decent uh, guy to, to get some DH plate appearances. That's exactly right. And don't, don't forget that the, the, the Yankees have a lot of maneuverability in this lineup, you know, even with uh, Gregorius gone, you know, Torres moving over to short, LeMahieu to second. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they can still pretzel this thing up quite a bit if, if they want to. If they want to get Andohar at bats at first base, they can do that. If they want to get him at bats at DH, they can do that. Uh, you know, it looks like Brett Gardner is going to hold down center field for at least until Aaron Hicks comes back. So at least Frazier and Talkman are only going to be asked to be playing in the corners. So there are, they have enough flexibility that. Obviously, they're going to be missing some offensive firepower with Stanton and or Judge out. So the the bat that's hot or the bat that produces should play. And that's interesting for, you know, Frazier and Andohar in particular because they're both bat first bot guys. But that happens to be what the Yankees will need right now. And you mentioned Brett Gardner. Brett Gardner just keeps turning up, doesn't he? Every year uh, he gets written off and he falls down to the latter half of most drafts and kind of the 4 or $5 auction guy. And there he is at the end with his you know $17 season, his you know, pretty decent home run output, a pretty decent stolen base output. He's just uh, like the Energizer Bunny, keeps going and going. He really is. The batteries have to run out at some point, but he's certainly showing no signs of that. Over in Boston, it's going to be tough to talk about uh, Chris Sale, who's got some elbow issues. This is following on from last year when he pitched ineffectively and there was talk of injury at that time. Again, Chris Olson for playing time today. Uh, I guess, Ray, it's going to be a little difficult to say what happens next because we don't know what's happening right now, but what's your assessment of the Chris Sale situation? As you might expect, I've been spending a fair amount of time trying to read the tea leaves here. Uh, as you say, there's probably going to be more news by the time our listeners are actually listening to this conversation. So uh, I, I won't go too, di- too deep down the rabbit hole. But it, it looks to me like there, the reports are that Tommy John is not currently a consideration. But it seems clear that he's going to need some rest and rehab time. I'm envisioning something like they're going to shut him down from all throwing for, you know, several weeks or a month and then put him on a, essentially a start of spring training program to ramp up again in April or something like that. I wouldn't be surprised if his return date is somewhere between late May and mid June is what we end up hearing. Uh, it, not all that uh, not all that different from what happened with uh, David Price when he had a similar injury at a similar point in camp two or three two or three years ago when I think Price was out until uh, roughly June 1st. So I'm, I'm envisioning something along those lines. Well, I noticed that, uh, again, at the depth charts at BaseballHQ.com, that uh, most starting pitchers are kind of in the uh, full-time starting pitchers are in that 13-14% range for the uh, available innings. And Chris Sale has been reduced to 7%, which is getting pretty close to halftime. So uh, at least... uh, 
the analysts at Baseball HQ who are looking at this rotation situation are not super optimistic about Chris Sale. And it makes me wonder if dra- people drafting, especially over the next you know week or 10 days, really need to reconsider Chris Sale, or is he going to be a huge buying opportunity? I The news would have to be a lot better than I just summarized for him to be a huge buying opportunity. I was open to that a week or so ago when the news was that he was just delayed because he had the flu and pneumonia. I would have been on the buying opportunity train there. But I think what we know now, especially for people who are drafting this weekend or drafting right now, I think that, you know, that chop to 7% playing time and basically a half a season for sale is an appropriately cautious projection. Based on the news, I wouldn't be surprised if we give him back a, a, a tick or two of innings, but you know, I would say the upside right now is 10%, which is you know, 150, 160 innings for the year. And right now that's seven. It's got to be about 110, I guess, is that's, that's about the range we're looking at pending the more precise medical di- diagnosis. And not just that, but, you know, it, 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 just because what they say they want to happen today or tomorrow when the announcement comes out, he's still got to go through the rehab and come back the way they're hoping for. The progression has to work out. So just because we're going to ink a number on him doesn't mean that there's not more downside from there if the uh, if he suffers further setbacks or get gets back and the elbow eventually goes or what have you. There's, there's, some, there's some real downside here. Uh, I haven't looked up the uh, ADPs, but I am pl- drafting in two leagues simultaneously here, both of them through the NFBC platform. One of them is the uh, Raz Slam, which just started drafting earlier this week, and the other one dra- started drafting a couple of weeks ago, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. Sale went at the end of the second round in that earlier draft. He's down to the 11th round in the later draft, and that's only you know a couple of weeks difference, and I wonder if there's still further room for him to fall. Yeah, 11th round, you know, if he was a May-June return, that doesn't sound out of line to me. That's not, I don't think, off the cuff, that's not all that different from what we're seeing from uh, from Paxton, uh, you know, who's not quite the same level of pitcher, but, you know, was on a similar timeline. So, so I might buy that. Uh, but you know, it's tough, particularly in those NFBC formats when there's no DL spots. It's tough to carry a guy, even of sales caliber, for two months and show, and chew up a uh, a reserve spot. As always, know your rules and where you're picking sale depends on whether you can just bury him on a DL spot for for as long as you need to, or whether he's actually bumping somebody else off your roster. Yeah, the Raz Slam event is a uh, best ball thing where we're drafting 42 guys, so there's 23 players plus 19 reserves. And under those circumstances, I think Chris Sale might be worth a dart throw because you don't really even have to worry about slotting him in and out because the computer decides who had a good, the best week that week. And, and once he gets back, Chris Sale might be uh, you know the kind of guy who could really be a help in that kind of format. But otherwise, I, I don't know. I, I'm risk-averse with pitchers anyway, and I, I just think this looks very risky to me. One of last year's most important breakouts, Ray, was Houston DH Jordan Alvarez. He probably won a lot of people their leagues, and now he's come up with some soreness in his knees, and I think this is a carryover from last year. What are the ramifications for Jordan Alvarez and the Houston lineup if he has to miss any kind of serious time? Sort of similar to Judge and Stanton, you can imagine that Houston, with their 
postseason aspirations and how 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 valuable Alvarez was to them last year. That even for something as it sounds as minor as soreness in the first week of March here, that they might be a little cautious with him in the early going of the season and make sure that he's ready for the grind of the season. They don't. They and they they also have plenty of alternatives here. One of the exciting things for me is it, it, this might further clear the path for an early everyday opportunity for Kyle Tucker, which is something we've wanted to see for a couple of years now. Uh, we sort of already had him on even footing with Josh Reddick for the third outfield spot behind Springer and Brantley. But if DH has opened up for more at-bats there, at least in the early going, it might be a chance for both Reddick and... Tucker to get every day at bats or in Reddick's at bat case every day against right-handed pitching and to really, and really see what these guys can do. And I, I, I believe in Tucker's bat enough that I think he's going to kick the door down when the opportunity comes. So the fact, the possibility of the opportunity coming right from the get-go is pretty exciting from where I'm looking at it. The guy that interests me in this story, everybody knows about Kyle Tucker. I think we've been waiting for Kyle Tucker, it seems like, since the dawn of time. But there's this uh, Miles Straw, the kid who can uh, has that blazing speed. I think he was the second fastest foot speed in all of baseball last year, uh, just a tick behind whoever the leader was. And uh, Miles Straw has been kind of kicking around the edges of that tough Houston lineup for a couple of years now, waiting for his opportunity. Could this be a chance to get in on the ground floor with Miles Straw, like in a keeper or dynasty format, or if you have some kind of super deep reserve format. I think Miles Straw could be a sneaky get here. Yes, I think that's probably true, and that especially becomes true if there's one more domino that falls here, if there's another injury in Houston, if something happened to, say, Reddick or something like that, then you know Straw certainly starts to look like the next man up. And you're right, from a skills perspective, he gets very interesting very quickly just because we like you know, we're so in tune with looking for people who have speed. Stolen bases is such a scarce category and straws somebody who can help there. And even moreover than that, not only is he blazing fast, but he's got some pretty decent plate skills too. There's no power to speak of there, but he walks 10% of the time. He makes you know, our projected contact rate is right around 79, 80%. I mean, he, so he's the guy, not just the Billy Hamilton burner who, you know, just randomly finds his way to first base every now and then and runs, but a guy who actually has a clue how to get on base, which you know, really is the, um, the fuel that can make that stolen base engine go if the, uh, if, if the bats show up. 15% walk rate in the majors last year and 108 uh, at bats, so probably 125, 130 plate appearances, something like that. Boy, if this guy can, you know, use his speed to get on base, his expected batting average was fairly low last year at 240. But if he can slap the ball around, get on base and walk, you know, 10 to 15% of the time, all of a sudden he, he looks like a fairly decent bet to steal 30 bases. He had eight last year in 100 and some at bats. Oh, yeah, he could steal 30 bases in half a season. We were Our projection is for 22 and just 246 at-bats, which is very close to that magic level that I always look for of one stolen base every 10 at-bats. He's sort of knocking on the door of that. So now, to to our original point here, the variable is the at-bats, and you know, especially if he's going to find an opportunity to get some at-bats early, there's, uh, you know, there's a chance that he could really, uh, quote-unquote, hit the ground running. <laughs> and in in the best ball format where the computer is just determining whether the guy has a week if if it's a very deep reserve 
a guy like Miles Straw, if he plays for a week, uh, you mentioned the possibility of injury, and Carlos Correa has to come up in that consideration too. And Straw is nominally a shortstop anyway, but if he were to have a couple of weeks, you know, he could uh, he could be a, a star performer in a self-optimizing league where the computer just picks out the guy who has the most points because he could steal, you know, seven bags in a week. Yeah, that's right. Stolen bases tend to come in clusters. And on top of that, Straw's playing time is probably going to come in clusters. So if you own him in a weekly league, you may very well end up tearing your hair out because he finds himself in the lineup on Tuesday, but you didn't activate him on Monday. And that's the week he steals five bases. But in the best ball format, sure, you're entirely immune from that. And whenever he just goes off, you'll be happy to take the profits. Stephen Nickrand is a buyer's guide columnist at Baseball HQ. He covers hitters and starting pitchers, and this week he was looking at some sleepers among the starters, and he's got a really good list in this article. Ray, I think uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, I've actually kind of sniped a few of these guys. We've talked about some of the pitchers before from the Angels, but other guys we haven't, and uh, let's go back to Houston. Uh, Stephen really likes Jose Urquidy. Yeah, Urquidy is a guy who's... Seems to have some helium in the ADPs right now, too, as it seems like people are realizing that he's got an inside track for a rotation spot on a very good Houston team. Uh, The interesting thing about him was he's always had good command in the minors, but he did bring it to Houston. You know, a 5.7 command is just eye-popping. He's also been very good against lefties, which is something you don't always see from a young pitcher who is making the transition to the majors. So the combination of command, success versus both lefties and righties, a 12% swinging strike rate, those are all checking all the boxes. And then on top of it, you throw in that support from a very good Houston offense, a very good Houston bullpen, and they're, he might be a five-and-five five five fly guy that they won't ask for a ton from him in terms of innings, but a chance to be super valuable in terms of quality ratios and, and big strikeout totals. Yeah, we're projecting him for an 8 or $9 season based on eight wins and a sort of four-ish ERA and 120 whip. I think that feels to me a lot like a floor. Doesn't it feel that way to you, that there's a lot of upside here at a $9 projection? Yeah, I think it's I, – I, I'm comfortable with the innings projection, but, yeah, I think his ratios could be better than that. In fact, uh, you know, there is a bit of a disconnect there. You can see between that – uh, you know, a pretty decent 118 whip, but a, a 412 ERA that's a lot closer to league average. Uh, so it might be, you know, he, he might be, uh, I'm, I'm scanning it now to see why that is. And oh, it looks like he's got a, uh, we're projecting a 17% home run per fly rate. So a little bit of gopheritis there. And, you know, certainly that's a consideration in that Houston ballpark. But, you know, if he can keep the ball in the park just a little bit better than that, that might be the fuel to get his ERA to uh, down to the upper or even mid threes. Ronaldo Lopez of the White Sox was pretty bad last year, but again, Stephen Nickran looking at possible sleepers, saw some signs that he liked. Uh, what was Stephen's take on Ronaldo Lopez? It was a bad year overall for Lopez last year, but it was very erratic. He had some very good months and some very bad months. Uh, August and September, uh, July and September, excuse me, were quite good. So in the, in net, in aggregate, the second half was a good bit better than the first. He had a 96 BPV for the second half. And interestingly, you know, one thing that caught my eye looking at it was that his velocity jumped quite a bit in the second half. He was uh, throwing a good mile and a half harder in the second half than the first. 
and doing it with better control. His control, he shaved off a full walk per nine from his uh, walk number from uh, 3.7 to 2.7. So the, you know, the, the combined trends of command improving as walks went down, strikeout rate going up, which makes sense, while the velocity was going up. You know, a lot of indicators moving in the right direction in the second half. He was doing, you know, it was still a very erratic second half, but it was getting to to the point where the good was outweighing the bad more often. And if we see that trend continue in 2020, then the stuff here, the, uh, you know, the big swing strike strike rate, the 96.2 mile per hour velocity, and obviously a much better, a much better team context in Chicago with all the changes they've made potentially benefiting as well from uh, Yasmani Grandal, who's an excellent uh, handler of pitchers and a framer. Uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of reasons to think that uh, the overall trend line with Lopez remains positive here. And we may have not seen his best yet. Yeah, the number that jumped out at me, Ray, in the first second half of last year was uh, the improvement in command. The strikeout to walk rate really did jump in a in a very nice way that uh, that I think we have to pay attention to, uh, especially in September. You mentioned a 7.5 command ratio versus right-handers. It was only 2.7 versus lefties, but you know most of the batters are right-handed. So if he if he can get anywhere near that, and he did it a couple of other months as well, as you mentioned, uh, April was pretty much the same, June was pretty much the same. But there's inconsistency here, and it could drive you crazy. But I think Ronaldo Lopez, if you're in the end game of a mixed draft or in the reserve rounds, and Ronaldo Lopez is still sitting there, it's somebody you have to think about. Uh, Frankie Montas of Oakland is being taken in, at least in my drafts, a lot earlier than I would have thought was prudent. Uh, but I have to say, Stephen Nick Rand likes Montas as a sleeper still. I don't know if he has that sleeper status still, but what do you think about Frankie Montas? I very much agree with your take. There's Stephen's right. There, there's a fair amount to like in this skill set, and I don't dispute that. But boy, the... Uh, it, he seems to be, if he's on our sleeper list, he seems to be on everyone else's sleeper list too. His ADP is sitting at 118 right now, which in a 15-team league is somewhere around, you know, what, round eight? That just seems high for me. Uh, you know, our projection is for 145 innings of, uh, you know, an ERA in the three nines. Uh, and, and to be fair, you know, he, Montez was looking pretty good. He was a lot better than that. Before he got suspended last year, he had a 270 ERA in 90 innings and a you know a very nice 147 BPV. But and, and you know that was fueled by a new splitter, a nice ground ball rate, all of that. But you know the XERA uh, didn't really support that last year. It was a 270 ERA, but a three and a half expected ERA. And then it, and then there are all the questions about the suspension and whether it, he comes back and what the uh, what the outlook is there. It seems like the market is very much in agreement with Steven, as you say, but the, you know, any time we're talking about sleepers, it's got to be relative to price. And Montas's price is just a little too high for me right now, even though there are certainly things to like in his skill set. I think so too. And uh, I noticed that our projections for, again, seven or eight bucks in a five by five standard format. And I think that that's a floor and I think there's lots of room to grow, but when you're talking about round eight, you know, you're, you're starting to talk about guys who should be solidly in the teens of dollar wise. Uh, and that seems very ceilingy to me for Frankie Montas. Although, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he finishes the season. Uh, well, it would surprise me, but it wouldn't shock me if he finished the season, uh, you know, in, in kind of the top 20 starters. 
Yeah, top 20 starter sounds a little aggressive. I'll certainly agree that our dollar value, if that puts him in, uh, you know, in the ADP range of, you know, somewhere in like rounds 15 to 20, that's probably a floor. Uh, but but I, I think the ceiling is much closer to where his current ADP is. I, I uh, you know, we're only projecting 145 innings, and certainly in, even in this age of innings limitations, that's not that unusual. But in 145 innings, it is really tough to return value of a top 20 starter or anything along those lines. That really does sort of cap his value at you know, more like top 40, I think. Uh, so if he got more innings, then maybe we could reconsider where the ceiling is. But you know, to me, the true value is probably somewhere between our projection and that ADP, you know, if we split the difference, I might consider drafting him there. But I, I can't, I haven't even come close to considering drafting him at where he's going right now. Ditto, uh, nor have I. Uh, one guy I have been targeting in drafts is Tampa's former opener, Ryan Yarbrough, who shapes up as getting more starts this year, more actual official starts. Although I think I might prefer him as a, as a bulk guy uh, than as a as a full time starter. What is Stephen Nickran's take on Ryan Yarbrough? Yeah, Stephen likes what he sees in the skills. You know, we have a lefty here who uh, you know, was another guy who surged in the second half last year in terms of his skills. He had 135 BPV in the second half. Uh, and both of you know, his uh, sub-indicators, his swinging strikes, his first pitch strikes were also on the upswing. And uh, you know, there, was, there was a lot to like there. But to your point uh, about the role, it's interesting because he really did benefit the last two years from being that bulk guy just in terms of racking up the wins. Uh, you know, he didn't have to go... You know, he would come in the game in the second or third inning after Stanek or somebody like that and had a much better chance of getting the win by being that guy who spanned the second to sixth or second to seventh inning than going one through five or one through six. Uh, you know, and 27 wins in the last two years is not, nothing to sneeze at in that sense. But he hasn't pitched super deep into games as a starter. You know, if, we, if he's going to start from the first inning more often this year, he will have trouble getting past the sixth, which is you know not a knock on him. Just about everybody does these days in this day of thir- age of 13-man pitching staffs. So the, the wins may be a little bit tougher to come by as a more traditional starter, but from a skills perspective, there's just a lot to like there. Um, he had the 16 wins in 2018, but his skills were so much better in 19. You know, he's actually a better pitcher now than that year when he won 16 games. We may not be able to count on 16 again. We, I would, we're projecting... Uh, 11 now, which is a match of last year, but with, uh, you know, with, with, with good ratios with a sub 40 RA and a 120 whip. Yeah. The thing about, uh, about, uh, Ryan Yarbrough is last year they babied him along. He, he, he managed almost exactly five innings per start, which means there's going to be a few sixes in there, but there's going to be a lot of fours, and it's those fours that concern me. Uh, again, getting back to the idea that if he's going to pitch four innings, I'd way rather it was three, four, five, six than one, two, three, four, because it does raise the possibility on a on a good team with a good bullpen again that uh, that there's some wins to be had there. And I know the conventional wisdom is don't chase wins. But at the same time, I think there's nothing wrong with looking at pathways to wins or, you know, the idea that wins are possible to get under certain circumstances. And depending on what those circumstances are for Yarbrough, it's going to have a fairly huge effect on his value and his perception of value. I think that's right. It'll, it'll be curious to see when we get in season what that how that plays out for the Rays. Because it's interesting, 
you know, they started using him a little bit more differently last year when they had so many injuries in the rotation and they, you know, then they traded Stanek at the deadline and didn't have really the tailor-made opener anymore to put in front of him. But if they're healthy with Snell and Morton and Glass now and even Chirinos, who also sort of graduated to being a, a full traditional starter last year, if those guys are healthy and, and in the rotation, then it seems like that they are still pretty reasonably equipped to use Yarborough as the bulk guy. And the advantage of that, of course, with the lefty starter is, with the lefty Yarborough, is that if the team they're facing generally runs righties at the top of the lineup, they can go with a righty reliever for the first inning and bring Yarborough in after that. So some of it is circumstance and some of it is, you know, team opponent and, uh, you know, just the availability of someone on the staff to fill the opener role in front of him. So it might very well be that as the year goes on and the, and the uh, Rays get their staff lined up the way they want to, that they still play, you know, if for no other reason than the lefty-righty game, that they do continue to use Yarbrough as more of a bulk guy, which I fully agree is really the best outcome for him in terms of value driven by wins. Finally, Ray, a bit of a surprise in Texas where manager Chris Woodward has announced that Danny Santana, last season's big surprise, is going to open the year with the starters role in center field. There had been rumblings that Santana might lose out to Joey Gallo, of all people, but also to prospect Nick Solak. Apparently that's gone by the boards. Looks like Danny Santana gets to start the season, at least as the regular center fielder. What's the playing time adjustment there and what's the value assessment there? Yeah, so Santana's you know taking a nice uh, bump in our projections already. He's up to eighty uh, percent playing time total, most of it in the outfield, based on this news, which is uh, up quite. I, I think he was under four hundred at bats uh, in more of a utility role before this uh, this job battle was announced. We're still not crazy about him this year, although I'm probably in terms of projection. Although I probably have some homework to do there. This is one of the things that came out of uh, first pitch Florida was we had a panel about uh, tough projections where uh, your uh, our good friend and your frequent guest Todd Zola was on that panel with me, as well as uh, Derek Carty, who runs projections for uh, the bat, his, uh, his projection system. One of the things we did talk about uh, in the context of that discussion was uh, the ballpark adjustments for the new ballpark in Texas and the reconfigured ballparks in Miami and San Francisco where they've moved the fences. And we were talking about how those affect the projections. Um, I may have overcorrected on the Texas ballpark here just to get, to bring this all the way back to Santana Uh, because of the new ballpark, primarily because it had a, it has a a roof and it's going to be air conditioned and they're not going to be playing in the usual Texas heat. I took that ballpark back to entirely neutral, which, as you can imagine, is a pretty big change from the way uh, Globe Life Park played. And, you know, since Texas, you know, Texas has always been a good run scoring environment in every ballpark they've had. So neutral is a pretty big difference there. But uh, in the conversations in that panel, that may have been a bit of an overcorrection. So I may have to uh, give Santana and the rest of the Texas hitters a, a little bit of performance back. That's something I'm going to look at in my uh, homework this weekend. Well, while you're about it, I'm sure you're going to also be looking at his uh, hit rate, we call it at Baseball HQ. His BABIP was uh, over 350, uh, almost at 36% to look at it uh, as a percentage figure. And how about a 24% home run per fly ball rate? I mean, even with the favorable park in Texas, where he didn't hit all his home runs in Texas, 
that's an interesting question whether home run per fly ball rate is a skill that a player owns or is it more you know happen to get a few favorable gusts of wind to use Ron Chandler's expression or is there something more going on there with more pulling or uh, you know did he do something to justify a 24% home run fly ball rate which is very high Oh, for sure. And, you know, my soliloquy about the ballpark factors aside, there's there's no question in my mind that the overall projection for Santana from last year has to be pulled back for exactly the reasons you say. The 36% hit rate, the 24% home run per fly ball, there's nothing in his history that, that suggests those are sustainable. And those numbers in our 2020 projection absolutely both need to be lower than that. It's just a question of degrees. We're at 32% home run per fly we're, uh, excuse me, 32% hit rate and 15% home run per fly right now. Uh, though he might he might deserve another tick or two back on those. But, uh, you know, so maybe not a 240 batting average, which is what we're projecting right now, but I can't see much more than 250, 255, I don't think, which is in line with what his, his expected batting average was last year. And I think they're probably pretty good for the 20 bags again if he gets the same amount of uh, plate appearances, anywhere around 500 plate appearances. I think he's pretty safe for 20 uh, stolen bases. It's the home runs that I worry about. You raised something interesting there, Ray, that I'd like to just briefly touch on. When I talked with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs earlier this week on the Tuesday Tout Edition, we fell into a side conversation a bit about what happens when you see a player who has a big breakout season like Danny Santana had in 2019. And I asked Alex, my own response when that happens is to immediately say he can't do it again, or it's highly, highly unlikely that this is going to be a repeatable kind of phenomenon. And Alex said he thought the same way, but he's kind of learning not to think that way and to be a little more analytical about it. Is there a, an issue with the perception of a guy who has a breakout as it being unrepeatable? Yeah, there's a default stance that we probably need to get softer with. Like, I, as you were talking that through, I'm sitting here looking at Santana's career log, and this is a 29-year-old now who last year as a 28-year-old had this massive breakout season after what amounts to about four years of part-time work and about a 1,000 at-bats of performance that was just on a completely different level before that. Um, a thousand at bats is a pretty darn significant sample size. So, sure, my default would be the same as yours and Alex's to say the thousand at bats should carry the day here. And, you know, he got some random gusts of wind or whatever in his favor last year, and we should not expect that to continue. However, in this day and age, we've always got to be aware of factors that can change that. You know, and I don't just mean going to drive line for, you know, primarily pitchers or changing his launch angle or and or or learning to pull the ball more, changing his spray chart or um, getting LASIK surgery or any of the other things we hear about at this time of year. But point being, there are more and more ways for players at any time to sort of reinvent themselves or reboot their player their profile. And we have to be open to the idea that the guy found an adjustment that works doesn't mean it's going to work forever. This is always a game of adjustment and counter adjustment. And now pitchers are certainly going to be attacking Danny Santana differently, but this coming year, but it doesn't mean that it was a complete fluke last year either. We've got to be more open to not just dismissing the, dismissing something like this out of hand. I, I agree with Alex's take on that. 
Yeah, I came to that same conclusion as well. And part of the reason, Ray, was because we are learning an awful lot about the extent that players are going to try to improve their skills in the offseason, and that happens a lot behind the scenes. And everybody's heard of Driveline, and Driveline does a pretty good job of, of publicizing itself with YouTube videos and that kind of thing. But we also know that there are all kinds of players, pitchers and hitters, who are going to these kind of highly specialized gyms, and they're taking really intense instruction. Uh, one of the things that Alex mentioned was, if a guy increases his pull rate, that is, he, he just focuses on getting the bat head out in front of the ball and trying to drive it into his pull side because, as we all know, if you hit the ball to left center, it's a 390 carry to the, to the outfield fence or something like that. If you pull it to the, to the foul pole in left, it's 350 feet. And guess what? It's easier to hit a ball 350 feet than 390. Yeah, absolutely. And there are, you know, to your point, there are advanced work people can do, combination of, you know, muscle and body development combined with video work and swing triggers and all these things to to make those kind of changes. And it, it's in some sense, you know, there's got to be a revalidation that goes on every year to see when a guy comes back to spring training at the start of the year to see whether he is the same guy he was previously or whether he's, you know, sort of reinvented himself. Yeah, it's an interesting question for sure. Uh, We mentioned at the top of this little discussion, Ray, about first pitch Florida. You touched on a few things. Uh, What what did you learn that maybe you think you can do even better next year? Uh, You know, first event like this, you know, we've got a lot of experience with first pitch Arizona, of course, but excuse me, bending it to, uh, to spring and spring training was, was, was a very different dynamic. Uh, we, we did learn a lot in terms of just, uh, you know, one of the great things was we had conversations about, you know, with all the attendees, we had great attendance. We had 110, 115 people there, combination of the industry, labor, drafters, and of course the, uh, you know, the registered public attendees who, uh, you know, are subscribers and people from other sites who just uh, wanted to come down and take in the whole weekend. Uh, I was actually on a plane when this happened, but Brent, Brent was telling me that, uh, you know, at the wrap-up session, sort of at the open Q&A, they had a good discussion about not just questions about pe- for people about their rosters and players for the coming year, but you know, how this weekend went and what they liked about it and what they didn't. We always do a nice big uh, attendee survey. One of the questions in my mind is going to be, in particular, is going to be, do we make it even bigger? You know, the Arizona event starts on Thursday night and runs through the weekend. And, you know, we sort of went with a walk before we run approach on this one and started on Friday night and ran through the weekend. So I'll be, one of the things that's at the forefront of my mind is whether we can blow it out another day and make it even bigger, which, yeah, I mean, who who doesn't want to, you know, spend an an even longer weekend at one of these things, right? So now that we've sort of proven the concept, maybe that's the next step. Anything come out of first pitch Florida that might be applicable to first pitch Arizona in uh, November? Uh, yeah, that's going to be something I've, we've got to put some thought into. Um, maybe some things as far as uh, hotel logistics and ball games. You know, the the, the ball games. Uh, you know, it's spring training, obviously a very different story. The tickets are more expensive, and people actually sitting in assigned seats and blocks because you're there with uh, you know four or five thousand people at the spring training games rather than a hundred in Arizona. But that led to that also led to some. Uh, 
some different interactions and some uh, people, you know, everyone getting to spend even more time together rather than, uh, you know, sitting next to each other at the ballpark rather than getting scattered to the four corners of the ballpark in Arizona to flop down wherever you want. So uh, there might be some, uh, some, some things like that, that we, that, that we liked here that we, we bend out in Arizona in October. Yeah, I thought when I was uh, doing some promos for for First Pitch Florida and, and the the fact that you're going to see Major League Spring Training games, I know there's some scrubs in there and stuff like that in the latter parts of the games, but you're seeing big league ballplayers, and as you said, the tickets are more expensive, which means people are more likely to go than they are at First Pitch Arizona, where despite the many advantages of going to those parks, a lot of the attendees just don't bother, and, and it's a shame that they don't because it's so much fun and it's so interesting. So that's something. Uh, speaking of First Pitch Florida, for the second year, you guys are doing an online event. You're going to be doing some webinars. Uh, tell, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so we're really trying to uh, make the online event as much of a replacement for the multi-city tour as we can. We certainly understand that not everybody could, could get to Florida last weekend as much as we would have liked to have had everybody there. So we're trying to provide the content, not the Florida content, but the kind of content we used to provide in the uh, three-hour multi-city tour in the online format. Uh, and it's you know, not intended to be a, a huge moneymaker, but more of a community-building um exercise and a sort of a capstone on your draft prep uh we've cut the price on that down to 19 bucks this year uh, it's an interactive you know three hours of interactive events uh one night every week for the next three weeks uh the first one was actually last night uh so the interactive part of that is over but the videos are available on the website after the fact so even if you missed the first hour it's worth jumping into you can watch the video of the first event and then join us if you want for the interactive parts the next two weeks, or you can just watch the videos after the fact. But uh, we're running through topics like, do you need to get steals in the early part of your draft, or can you afford to wait, or should you buy any starting pitcher or not, or who are the safe harbors in the catching pool, or who are some prospects to tuck away in case the National League gets the DH next year. You know, it, it, We'll be covering five or six topics like that in every single one of the one hour session. So total of, you know, 15, 18 of those sort of things. There'll be opportunity for Q and a with me, Brent Hershey, Ron Chandler, any of the other, uh, baseball HQ personalities who will be, uh, sort of wandering through the, uh, the program as well. So we're, uh, you know, it's not the same as getting together in Chicago or New York or St. Louis, uh, you know, for three hours, but we still think it's a pretty good proxy. The platform we're working on is, uh, works really well. And we, uh, We'd love to see anybody who wants to jump out and uh, spend three hours uh, talking baseball before we go to we get into deep into draft mode late in March here. Ray sounds super. Uh, again, first pitch online is not something you have to be there to attend. You can watch uh, afterwards at your own convenience, on demand, as you can call it. You can watch it more than once if you missed uh, something or thought it was so much fun. There's a lot of ways to to take in the First Pitch Forums online, and for 19 bucks, I can't understand why you wouldn't. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out uh, this week. We'll talk to you again in seven days. Sounds good, Patrick. Thank you. Ray Murphy is co-general manager of Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site. And, of course, he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and the three-minute warning next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ has a couple of innovative new ways to get you in touch with your inner fantasy monster champion. 
The first is First Pitch Forums Online. For the second straight year, BaseballHQ.com is inviting you to join Ron Chandler, Ray Murphy, and Brent Hershey for three fully interactive one-hour webinar sessions. For only $19, Ron, Ray, and Brent plus other Baseball HQ analysts, have tons of March insights for you that you can use in your drafts. There's the secrets of this year's player pool, relievers who could be closing by June, sluggers to worry about if the ball is de-juiced, potential busts in the ADP Top 50, there's profit in those muddy playing time situations, 2021's new first-rounders, and much more. Session 2 is Wednesday, March the 11th, and Session 3 is Tuesday, March 17th. Session 1 is already in the books, but you haven't missed it because your First Pitch online subscription lets you watch all the videos online and on demand, starting the day after each session. First Pitch Forums Online, three hours of invaluable insight that will make the perfect capstone to your draft prep. All three sessions for only 19 bucks. First Pitch Forums Online, you can check it out at BaseballHQ.com. And as if that weren't enough, BaseballHQ.com has also introduced a new subscription model. It's called HQ Basics. And for just $9.95, HQ Basics strips everything down to the HQ tools and information you need to dominate your draft, including a brand new PDF cheat sheet for the game's most common formats, 5x5 Roto and points leagues with standard ESPN and Yahoo scoring. Cheat sheets are updated every Friday through draft season, adjusting for all the latest player movement, the injuries, the news from spring training. The cheat sheet is one thing to take into your standard draft, powered by the proven methods of BaseballHQ.com. HQ Basics also gives you access to two subscriber-only articles every week, one fact or fluke player performance validation column and one playing time tomorrow column, checking in on Major League Teams roster developments. These will also be updated every Friday from now through opening day. Draft season is already underway, so don't wait. There's no better way to be prepared than with a subscription to the time-tested winning formulas of BaseballHQ.com. And now, there are three ways to get that winning formula. Full season, draft prep, and new HQ Basics, just $9.95. What are you waiting for? Pause this podcast, get over to BaseballHQ.com, and subscribe today. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the three-minute warning. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your draft and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Boston outfielder Jaron Duran. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. He's an emerging outfielder who started the 2019 season on fire before cooling upon his double-A promotion, according to the 2020 minor league baseball analyst. But if you don't turn your head fast enough, you just might miss the speedy 23-year-old Boston Red Sox outfielder, Jared Duran who stole 46 bases through two levels of the Miners in 2019. In fact, Jaron Duran led the Red Sox organization in both stolen bases and triples in 2019. And maybe that's a great place to start. Speed for stolen bases and triples, as in triple A's. More specifically, triple A Pawtucket, where Jaron Duran is likely to stop, perhaps briefly, before arriving in Boston. Blink and you just might miss him. 
However, despite Jared Durant's quick climb through the minors, he was drafted in the seventh round in 2018 and is already a double A, Jared Durant isn't known for his power. He has only registered eight home runs total in two years. Not exactly an intimidating power display. That's why Jaron Duran, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. But Jared Duran's lack of punch is not a concern, as he hits hard line drives with a level swing path, according to the 2020 minor league baseball analyst, further stating that Jaron Duran could be a top-of-the-order hitter with a high on-base percentage. So let's not pull punches. Speaking, of course, of Jared Duran's apparent lack of punch, a closer look shows that Jared Duran has posted a pretty high 823 OPS, or odd base plus slugging percentage, approaching the 900 OPS level that we use to identify baseball's best hitters. However, as we said before, Jaron Duran has not hit a lot of home runs, only eight, so his 823 OPS seems surprising. Then again, as we previously stated, Jaron Duran led the Red Sox organization in triples in 2019 and posted a career 322 batting average through 802 at-bats in the minors. In other words, perhaps there's more to Jaron Duran than what meets the eye, making reference, of course, to Baseball HQ's batting eye ratio, measuring walks to strikeouts. Even though Jaron Duran's 35 eye ratio could be considered a red flag, pointing to possible batting average regression, it's also important to remember that we're looking at a very, very small sample size, as Jaron Duran has matriculated through several levels of the minors in just two years. Therefore, as we reach the finish line of this discussion, maybe a checkered flag instead of a red flag would be more appropriate. For the speedy, Jaron Duran is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the three-minute warning, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about why I'm not taking starting pitchers in an experts draft. I'm playing this season in a new experts league, the Raz Slam League. Raz Slam is a best ball league, so it's low maintenance with no daily or even weekly moves. More importantly for me, Raz Slam is a points league, and I wanted to try a draft strategy I've been discussing with some friends on Twitter. I'm not drafting starting pitchers in my strategy until the 14th round, maybe even later, maybe even not at all. In the scoring format in this league, hitters earn way more points than pitchers, and closers earn more points than starters. To set up for this draft, I averaged a few projection systems and converted the resulting stats into points. In the NFBC best ball format, hitters earn 6 points for homers, 5 points for stolen bases, 4 for hits, 2 each for runs and RBIs, and at-bats cost a point apiece. A home run is therefore a 13-point event. You want to get a lot of home runs. Pitchers, meanwhile, earn 6 points for a win, 8 points for a save, 3 points per inning pitched, a point for each strikeout, and minus 1 for a hit or walk, plus minus 2 for an earned run allowed. The top hitter in this points format is Christian Yelich. He's projected to earn 962 points for the season. The top pitcher, Justin Verlander. He's projected to earn 645 points, a 317-point gap. 34 hitters have higher projected points than Verlander for the season. 
but in my draft, he was taken 10th overall. That owner passed on, among others, Jose Ramirez, the 10th ranked hitter who projected to 758 points. To me, it looks like Verlander's owner threw away about 113 points. That's happened all the way down the draft. Go down to the fourth round. Kershaw, Corbin, and Snell went in that round, all around 480 points. Those owners passed on Blackman, Bichette, Chris Bryant, Keston Hyura. Now the lowest of these hitters is Hyura at 584 points. That's a 100-point loss over any of Kershaw, Corbin, and Snell. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, where did I leave my car keys? But more pertinently, you're thinking, doesn't the lower caliber of PD's starting pitchers later offset all the gains he's going to get from his hitters early? I thought of that, so I checked. Starting pitchers don't start catching up with hitters until we're under 400 projected points. That's around the 20th round in this league. At that stage, if I take a pitcher for 400 points, I'm 130 points better off with Jose Ramirez and, say, Masahiro Tanaka than I would have been with Jacob deGrom and Jock Peterson. The moral of my story is understand the rules of your league, especially the scoring system. In this particular case, get hitters early. Draft for points totals, ignore starting pitchers who are always a bad deal until the late rounds, and let the self-optimizing scoring structure work for you. More on that next week. Oh, and your car keys? They're on the kitchen counter. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt from BaseballHQ.com. I have my three-minute warning commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio on Friday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 10 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your three-minute warning commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Apple Pods or Pocket Cast Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, and most of them will, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help new listeners find the show, and more listeners means we can keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday, when our Tuesday Tout expert will be speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield from BaseballHQ.com. That's Ryan Bloomfield on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Tuesday, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.